Oh, good morning, church. My name's Dan. I'm one of the pastors here. If you were here last week, um, this sermon is only going to make sense if you were here last week or you listened to the sermon last week because we laid down some critical foundational building blocks about the reality that God creates all things, that he made humanity in his image, and that he made humanity male and female. And we spent most of our time last week considering God's design for gender, God's design, good design to create male and female. We also considered sin's distortion of gender and how Christ redeems gender. Now this week, we're going to build upon that foundation from last week and consider how men and women, boys and girls, ought to relate to one another in marriage, in singleness, and in the church. So my main point this morning of this sermon, which is in fact three different sermons combined into one, is men and women flourish as God's image bearers in distinct and complementary ways as co-heirs in Christ and co-laborers for the gospel in marriage, in singleness, and in the church. There's a lot in there, but we're going to break it down as we go through this. So first point, men and women in marriage. As I mentioned last week, marriage as biblically defined is a covenant between one man and one woman for life. And here at Sovereign Grace Church Dayton, we believe that God created men and women in similar and distinct ways to complement one another in marriage. So the first truth that grounds the relationship between a husband and wife in marriage is the reality that husbands and wives are both image bearers, lawbreakers, and co-heirs with Christ. There is much a husband and wife share in a Christian marriage. First, both are made in the image of God and equally valuable. Second, both have broken God's laws and are in need of his grace. Third, both have become co-heirs with Christ through the gospel. These truths are foundational to a marriage because it ensures that our identity in Christ is the primary basis by which husbands and wives relate to one another in marriage. This is why in Ephesians chapter 5, Paul first focuses on the common commands applicable to both the husband and wife before, before discussing the unique roles in marriage. In Ephesians 5, 21 and 22, Paul says, submit to one another out of reverence for Christ. And immediately after that, wives, submit to your own husbands as to the Lord. Now the command for wives submitting to their husbands is built upon the foundation of the mutual submission of husbands and wives as co-heirs in Christ. Now this is important because before we get to the unique functions of men and women in marriage, we must realize that there is a massive overlap in the commands that both a husband and wife ought to follow as Christians. Kindness towards one another, humility towards one another, serving one another, and hundreds of other commands in the New Testament are applicable to both the husband 
and the wife and ought to be foundational in the marriage. We have to begin there. Now, based on this foundation, let's consider the unique role of a husband and a wife in marriage. The unique role of husband, of the husband in marriage, is called headship. Verse 23 in chapter 5 of Ephesians says this, For the husband is the head of the wife, even as Christ is the head of the church, his body, and is himself its savior. So just as Christ is the head of the church, the husband is the head of the wife. Now, the role of headship that is given to the husband is rooted in the creation order that we considered last week, in which Adam was the one who was created first and given a priest-like task to keep and cultivate the garden. Headship does not mean that the husband has unilateral authority, to do what he wants and to get his own way whenever. The headship of the husband is bound by the headship of Christ. And there are specific ways in which a husband is called to express his headship in marriage. Here's my summary statement on headship. The husband reflects God's image as head by humbly leading, sacrificially serving, and lovingly cherishing his wife as Christ does the church. So first, a husband reflects God's image as head by humbly leading his wife. A godly husband is humbly aware of his own shortcomings, yet that does not keep him from being actively engaged in all areas of life within his home. One pastor suggests that a husband ought to be the one who most often says the word let's. This one word let's captures succinctly what it means for husbands to humbly lead and initiate. Let's pray. Let's go to church. Let's read the Bible with our children. There is a particular responsibility that is laid upon the husband to work towards the spiritual growth of each member in the home. Humble leadership also means husbands ought to be the first to take initiative in resolving conflicts in marriage. Husbands ought to be the first ones to say, let's talk about this. And if you are humble in your humility, Husbands ought to strive to understand your role in the conflict first and how you can apologize and make things right instead of wanting your wife to go first. This is extremely hard for us as husbands and in our sinful nature, it makes it even more difficult, but humble leaders initiate peace in the home. And we husbands must learn to listen well understand the concerns of our wives and take all necessary measures to mend the relationship. Even if that means receiving care and counsel from others. Second, a husband reflects God's images head by sacrificially serving his wife. Ephesians 5 tells us that since Jesus sacrificed his life for the church, husbands ought to sacrificially lay down their lives for their wives. This means, husbands, the needs of your wife supersede your comfort. This means helping out with the kids even when you're exhausted after work. 
It means getting up early or staying up late so your wife can get some rest. It also looks like taking care of your wife when she is sick. This is something in particular that I have watched the Lord give grace to many husbands in this church as you care for your wife when she is sick. And I really admire and respect you for that. But husbands, keep in mind, no matter how difficult the sacrifices you think you are making as husbands, it does not compare to the sacrifice Christ made for us by giving up his life. So husbands, we have a source of infinite motivation to sacrificially serve our wives. Third, a husband reflects God's image as head by lovingly cherishing his wife. Verse 28 says, he who loves his wife loves himself. For no one ever hated his own flesh, but nourishes and cherishes it, just as Christ does the church, because we are members of his body. Since the husband and wife become one flesh in marriage, the husband is called to love the wife as he does his own body. Some of you husbands might be like, well, I don't love my body too much, so that doesn't really make sense. Well, let me assure you, you love your body. You eat when you are hungry, you go to sleep when you are tired, and I'm pretty sure you don't punch yourself in the face for fun. You love your body very much. In the same way, husbands, you must nourish and cherish and take care of your wives. This implies protecting our wives. This implies building her up. It implies encouraging her. It implies pursuing her and saying, let's go on a date. It means being interested in your wife and finding out ways to grow and delighting in her and making her feel loved and appreciated. Now, husbands, when we consider God's design for us in marriage, we fall short in countless ways. Some of us are prone to be passive, especially when we abdicate our responsibility for spiritual leadership, just like Adam did in the garden. Or when we become blame shifters like Adam, blaming our wives or others in the church for our failings. When husbands are selfishly passive, they avoid conflict, make excuses, hide sin, escape into the fantasy world of media and video games instead of engaging personally and intentionally with our wives and children. Other husbands are not prone to passivity, but can be selfishly aggressive and domineering towards their wives making decisions unilaterally, demanding respect, and always pointing to your leadership as the reason for a decision. I think it's kind of odd if the husband is always pointing to his authority and leadership in conversations in a marriage. Just think about it. Don't you think it would be odd for a professor in a classroom to constantly remind his students, I'm the professor. Hey, I'm the professor. If a professor had to do that, there may be something wrong with the way the professor is carrying himself. 
Similarly, husbands, you ought to have a natural credibility in the way you live that makes it clear that you are the head of the home. If you have to constantly remind your wife who's in charge, there might be something wrong with your credibility. In Colossians 3.19, Paul specifically commands husbands not to be harsh with our wives. And Peter, in fact, warns husbands who are harsh that they will find God opposed to them and hindering their prayers if they don't live with their wives in an understanding way. Sobering for us husbands. Now, regardless if you are prone to passivity or to aggression, husbands, let us repent of our sins and be thankful that in Christ we are forgiven. But husbands, here is a good test to see how well you are practicing headship. Would your wife say this about you? Just think about your wife and would she say this about you? My husband loves me, honors me, leads me spiritually. He gladly makes sacrifices so I can grow in my gifts. He lays down his desires for me. All that comes out of his mouth is words of grace to build me up. Now, husbands, if, if you're questioning if that is true or not, if, you're, if, you're, if your wife thinks that way about you, ask your wife this, how can I love you better? How can I serve you? How can I spiritually lead us better? Husbands, our motivation for doing this is rooted in the picture of Christ leading, serving, and loving the church. So let's ask for the Spirit to empower us to love our wives as Christ loves the church. Now let's consider the unique role of a wife in marriage. We discussed last week that the woman was created with the unique privilege of imaging God as helper to strengthen her husband. So here is my summary statement of the unique responsibility of a wife in marriage. The wife reflects God's image as helper by freely submitting, eagerly supporting, and intentionally respecting her husband as Christ does the church. So first, a wife reflects God's image as helper by freely submitting to her husband. Ephesians 5.23 begins with the command for wives to, to submit to their husbands as to the Lord. The phrase as to the Lord implies that the wife's ultimate allegiance is to the Lord. And out of her desire to honor the Lord, she ought to submit to her husband. This also means that she's not required to submit to her husband if it means disobeying Christ. Submission for a wife means gladly following your husband's leadership in the home. It means trusting the Lord to direct, to lead, to guide your husband as the head of the home. I included the word, the word freely submitting because, because husbands cannot demand submission. It must be freely given by the wife. I can imagine submission being hard for wives, especially because we as husbands do not love you like Christ loves the church. 
We often fail, we stumble, we fall short. But regardless, the Lord has given to the wife the privilege to display Christ's submission to the church. Let me say that again. Regardless, the Lord has given the wife the privilege to display the church's submission to Christ. You guys should have been shocked when I said that. (laughs) Time to wake up. In doing so, wives, you get the privilege of bearing testimony to the reality that the church in its consummated state as the bride of Christ will freely and gladly submit to the lordship of Christ. What a joy and privilege that is. Second, a wife reflects God's image's helper by eagerly supporting her husband. This means your husband should have a sense that you are on his team, eagerly rooting for him, cheering him him on. Whether it's in his vocation or in his leadership in the home, in the ways that he provides for the family, wives ought to eagerly support their husbands. Now, sin mars this good design for wives, especially when some wives might be prone to quarreling and complaining instead of eagerly supporting your husbands. Listen to these warnings in Proverbs. It is better to live in a corner of the housetop than a house shared with a quarrelsome wife. It is better to live in the desert land than with a quarrelsome and fretful woman. Check this out. Here's what God is saying. It is better to live on a roof where it's raining and cold or in the desert with no food or water than to live with a woman who is going to jab at you, poke at you, emasculate you, question you. Instead, what a gift it is when a wife eagerly supports her husband in spite of his weaknesses and shortcomings. Third, a wife reflects God's image as helper by intentionally respecting her husband. Verse 33 says this, however, let each one of you love his wife as himself and let the wife see that she respects her husband. This is a simple command to respect your husband. And this respect should be reflected in a wife's disposition of honor toward her husband, and it also ought to be reflected in her words towards her husband and in the way she talks about him to others. This means wives ought to be experts in their husband's strengths, not their weaknesses. Your husband is quite aware in the ways that he is falling short. So be an expert in communicating to him where God is at work in his life. Wives, here's a good test to see how well you're practicing being a helper in your marriage. Would your husband say this about you? My wife encourages me regularly. She supports my leadership. She respects me. She prays for me. She's eager to help me. She's full of grace in her words towards me. And if you think that is not true, wives, ask your husbands regularly, how can I help you? 
How can I encourage you? How can I grow in supporting your leadership in the home? Now, let me just make an important point here specifically to women who have experienced or are experiencing abuse in your marriage. And everything that I just described about the role of a wife just sounds impossible to you because your husband is wicked and evil. Well, what I've described here is God's good design for marriage that is unfortunately broken in this fallen world. So for women who are in an abusive situation, your husband is disobeying Christ and will have to answer to him one day. And we want you to know, and we truly mean this as pastors, that you are not trapped in your situation. And we will do whatever we can as pastors to help you, to ensure your safety, even if that means involving the civil authorities. Now, let me just conclude this section by summarizing God's design for men and women in marriage from our statement of faith. Biblical manhood and womanhood enrich human flourishing in all its dimensions. God instituted marriage as a union of one man and one woman who complement each other in a one flesh union that ultimately serves as a type of the union between Christ and his church. This remains the only normative pattern of sexual relations for humanity. Husbands are to exercise headship sacrificially and with humility. And wives are to serve as helpers to their husbands, willingly supporting and submitting to their leadership. Together, these complementary roles bring joy and blessing to each other and display the beauty of God's purposes to the world. So now that we've considered God's good design for men and women in marriage, let's consider God's good design for men and women in singleness. The second point, men and women in singleness. The first truth about singleness we must understand is that single men and women have the privilege of uniquely pointing to the gospel. Now, what do I mean by that? We know and we've talked a lot about how marriage points to the ultimate reality of Christ and the church. But how does singleness fit into God's design and purposes? Well, as part of God's original design, singleness was not a good thing because God commanded humans to be fruitful and multiply. And that can only happen in the context of marriage. But as we walk through the Bible, we see that singleness is progressively revealed to be good and desirable option for some. And it can uniquely point to an aspect of the gospel in a way that marriage does not. Consider what Jesus says about this. For in the resurrection, this is Matthew 22, they neither, talking about men and women, they neither marry nor are given in marriage, but are like the angels in heaven. Huh, what's that all about? Well, Jesus is saying that there will not be marriage in heaven. The point I think that he's trying to make is that since we will have the ultimate reality of marriage between Christ and the church, human marriage, which is just a shadow, will no longer be needed. In one sense, everyone is single in heaven because we are all united to Christ in marriage. 
Now, lest that discourage you, married folks, let me assure you that, that you don't lose your spouse or your relationships in heaven. But if you are believers, your relationships will be more glorious and beautiful than what you have experienced here in this world marred by sin. So to summarize, in marriage, the couple gets the privilege of reflecting and ultimately pointing to the picture of Christ and the church. In singleness, the man or woman gets the privilege of reflecting and ultimately pointing to the reality that one day we will be so satisfied in our marriage to Christ that there will be no need for human marriage. The second truth we must mention is that single men and women are invaluable to the life and mission of the church. As we come to the New Testament, we see that singleness is a desirable option. We see John the Baptist is single, we see Paul is single, and Jesus himself is single. Paul tells us in 1 Corinthians 7 that a single person is better able to serve God because his attention is undivided and undistracted compared to a married person. Unfortunately, singleness in our culture is seen as a time of self-indulgence instead of living for God. And you can really waste your singleness if you spend it consumed with the idea of finding a spouse. If you are single in this season, especially young men and women, I would encourage you to seek God passionately. You have more time now than you will ever have to dig deep into the Bible, to memorize it, to meditate on it. You will have more time now than ever to pray, to serve others, to share the gospel. You have time and capacity to experience a kind of joy that is unique to this season of your life. I got married when I was 32. I wanted to be married when I was much younger, but that was not God's plan. I can tell you as hard as it was to long for and to wait for marriage, I enjoyed being single. I enjoyed the time I had to serve my church, to spend lots of time in the Bible, in worship, in prayer, sharing the gospel, going to seminary, all of the things my married friends wished they could do, but they could not because of the legitimate responsibilities they had in marriage and parenting. So single men and women, let your singleness proclaim to the watching world that Jesus is sufficient and what an amazing testimony that can be for the life and mission of the church. Now we've considered God's design for men and women in marriage and in singleness. Now let's briefly consider how God designed men and women to relate to one another in the church. When we discuss the roles of men and women in the church, we must begin with the foundational reality that men and women are co-heirs in Christ and co-laborers in the gospel. Just as the creation mandate was given to the man and woman to be fruitful and rule over the earth, similarly, God's plan of redemption is given through the Great Commission to both men and women who will work together as co-laborers to bring about God's redemptive purposes to the nations through the church. 
there are several examples in the New Testament of men and women co-laboring to advance the gospel. Let me just give you one from the book of Philippians. Paul entreats Euodia and Syntyche to agree in the Lord. Yes, I ask you, true companion, help these women who have labored side by side with me in the gospel, together with Clement and the rest of my fellow workers whose names are in the book of life. Paul is so aware of the significant contributions of Euodia and Syntyche in his gospel ministry that he says that they, he labored side by side with them in the gospel. These women were not just serving in the back in some invisible manner. They were visibly in the front lines with Paul, building the church and advancing the gospel. There are many examples in scripture of women serving as deacons, hosting house churches, praying and prophesying in corporate worship, and many other things. So I just want you to know that just as it was impossible for men and women to fulfill the great, to fulfill the creation mandate of being fruitful and ruling the earth without working together, it is just as impossible for the church to fulfill the great commission without men and women working together as co-laborers to bring about God's redemptive purposes for the nations. This is why here at our church, we want godly men and women to be visible partners in the corporate life of our church. When people visit this church, may it be evident that men and women are visibly working together as co-laborers. We desire to see both men and women using their unique giftings to lead, to serve, to counsel, to care, to encourage, to pray, to prophesy, to mutually build one another and to point one another to Christ. The second reality scripture tells us about men and women in the church is that the office of elder or pastor is reserved only for qualified men. The qualifications of an elder in 1 Timothy 3 and Titus 1 make it clear that only qualified men can be pastors. And they are given a unique responsibility for spiritual oversight, teaching, and exercising authority in the church. This shouldn't surprise us at this point because we have seen this pattern in the created order in Genesis that we talked about last week as well as in God's design for husbands to be the spiritual leaders and heads in their marriage. Now, this does not mean that men cannot learn from women or that women don't have avenues for teaching in the church, but it does mean that based on the authority of scripture, we must wholeheartedly embrace God's design for male-only pastors for the health and flourishing of the church. More on that in another time. The final truth related to men and women in the church is that men and women in the church ought to reflect the reality of being the spiritual family of God. 1 Timothy 5, 1 and 2 says this, do not rebuke an older man, but encourage him as you would a father. Younger men as brothers, older women as mothers, younger women as sisters in all purity. The church functions well when we reflect God's family. 
men and women interacting with one another as fathers, as mothers, as brothers and sisters. There should be a warmth and respect in our interactions between men and women in the church, honoring and respecting older men and women as fathers and mothers, and treating peer relationships as brothers and sisters in Christ. It's interesting, in some complementarian circles, sometimes women can be overlooked or treated as invisible. Men, let me encourage you to treat women in the church as mothers and as sisters in Christ. Yes, we ought to treat women in all purity, but purity does not mean avoiding them or ignoring them. Instead, interact with them normally as you would a mother or a sister if you had one. Likewise, women treat the men in this church as fathers and brothers. There's much that we can learn from one another, and there's something more beautiful we can build into the culture of this church if we reflect the family of God. So, to conclude, fathers, mothers, brothers and sisters, younger brothers and sisters as well. If our vision for men and women in marriage, in singleness, and in the church is going to be compelling, it must be rooted in Scripture. It must be generous and warm and practiced well. And we must be unwilling to give in to cultural pressures to do otherwise. So building on last week's foundation, we can now see from Scripture that God created marriage as one man and one woman for life, and that God is redeeming humanity through the good news of Jesus Christ being proclaimed by married and single men and women in the church who are co-heirs with Christ and co-laborers in the gospel. And finally, we wait for that day when we as redeemed men and women enter into the eternal joy of our marriage with Christ. I hope you guys can now see based on last week's sermon and this week's sermon that we can delight in the reality that the fact that God made you either male or female is not temporary or incidental to, incidental to, to his purposes, rather gender sexuality, marriage, singleness, and how we interact to one another with one another in the church has eternal and enduring significance. Amen.